Good morning. This is Maggie Jones and Natural Wonders. I'll be reading again from one of my favorite books of Frances Hammerstrom. Is She Coming Too? Memoirs of a Lady Hunter. This time I'll be reading two chapters, Woman's Place and Is She Coming Too? But first, as way of introduction, a little bit from the Wisconsin Conservation Hall of Fame website, wchf.org, Wisconsin Conservation Hall of Fame, about the Hammerstroms. Frederick Hammerstrom and Francis Flint describe themselves as a couple of Boston blue bloods. Married in 1931, the Hammerstroms forged one of the most remarkable wildlife ecology teams. Research fellows under Aldo Leopold, the Hammerstroms have become best known for their work with prairie chickens at the Central Wisconsin Game Project near Nina and the Prairie Grouse Research Unit in Plainfield. Their work was the basis for the conservation effort which saved the prairie chicken from extirpation in Wisconsin. From the book cover, Nelson Bryant of the New York Times is quoted, Frederick never had a chance. What red-blooded man could resist a woman who strips into the buff on Thanksgiving Day to retrieve a duck she has downed? Unquote. And Fran was 25 years old and Hammy was 23 during this time described in the book. And now I'll start reading Woman's Place. This is Is She Coming To? Memoirs of a Lady Hunter. In 1932, we moved out west to study under Paul Arrington at Iowa State College. There was one graduate student, Logan Bennett, already there. Logan had much charm, a southern accent, and he knew that a woman's place was in the home. There were a few little useful functions that a woman could perform outside the home, but I didn't learn of these until the pheasant season opened. Bird hunting, for me, had mostly been poking around old New England apple orchards for rough grouse or squishing through alder thickets for woodcock. Iowa's vast cornfields looked to me like a hopeless place to put up birds. On opening day, our party assembled. There were about nine men and four women. We met near a slough and parked the cars by the roadside. Nobody in Iowa ever spoke of the hunt master, but Logan, who admitted that he had the best dogs, ran the show. Logan asked Frederick, Fran has a license, doesn't she? Frederick turned politely to me so I could answer for myself, but I found it more interesting to await developments. I did wonder why Logan hadn't asked me. I was standing right there with my gun. After an awkward pause, Frederick answered, Of course she has a license. Do you think she'd go hunting without one? Very good, was Logan's approving answer. Now will the ladies please come here? Here's a map. Logan spread the map out on the hood of one of the cars. Logan spoke patiently as though the ladies were slightly mentally retarded. We are here. You will take this road. And when you come to the end of it, you will turn north. That means you will go to your right, okay? You will go north one mile, and there'll be a road to the right. You will go right twice. Logan peered at the ladies anxiously. And then you go half a mile and park by a little shed. The ladies nodded understandingly. 
Eleanor will drive the Dodge, Irma drives the Ford, and Fran drives the Hammerstrom Chevy. Well, girls, he added, have a good time. The girls parked near the little shed and then assembled in the Dodge. I stood by our Chevy with my gun on the ready. Dried heads of Queen Anne's lace nodded briskly in the roadside ditch, and the corn plants gave a steady rustle in the wind, which was north by northwest. At last I heard some shooting, but it was still far away. I walked over to the Dodge. Come in, come in, there's lots of room. Thank you. I just wanted to ask where you think they'll be coming over. Why, Eleanor replied in a mystified tone, they'll join us here. No, I wanted to know where you think the pheasants will be coming over. Irma said doubtfully, we don't usually see any, but we might. I went back to my stand at the roadside and gradually reached the conclusion that the men were not trying to drive the pheasants toward the girls. This was later confirmed by Logan's remark to the ladies in the Dodge. Have a nice visit. Six pheasants were tossed into the trunks of cars. Dogs were praised and some were even petted. Then we all moved on to repeat the whole process. And again, I stood alone by the roadside waiting for the chance that never came. At the next parking place, I looked the ladies over. Eleanor was wearing field clothes, but the other two were wearing dresses and little city jackets. Do you all have hunting licenses? Oh, yes. And guns? No. Utterly baffled, I waited for an explanation. Irma supplied it. Do you see? If you have a license, too, your husband can shoot two limits. Appalled. I went back to my stand at the roadside and waited until our little group assembled again. By then the sun was getting high. Logan explained quickly where we were to meet them next. Time for one more before lunch. Again the map was laid on the hood of a car. The ladies received their instructions. Just as Logan started to move away, I stopped him. He was taller than I, but it seemed I could look him straight in the eye. I spoke very clearly. Your turn. What? He stammered. What do you mean? Your turn to play chauffeur. I tossed him the keys of our Chevy. Then I joined the men and plunged into a vast cornfield to hunt pheasants. I was not invited to go pheasant hunting again. And that's the end of Woman's Place. And now the chapter, Is She Coming Too? I have not always been welcome. This is, of course, because of the behavior of other women. There are those who go into the woods so heavily drenched in perfume that the stench would spook any deer and mask all those nifty odors that tell so much outdoors. There are those whose high girlish giggle drowns out the sound of the comfortable quacking of mallards down the creek or the telltale conversations game birds tend to have in dense cover. And then, too, there are those who want to go home early and cannot possibly find their way back to the car unaided. Hunters tend to be subtle and try various ingenious ways of keeping a female out of the party. My wife, says one, having just made a phone call, is giving a little party this afternoon and is counting on having you there. Sometimes I have nightmares about this sort of thing. A group gathers merrily with dogs snuffing around our feet. The leader says to Frederick, you ride in the front seat with Andy there. Off they go. And the rest, all five of you, pile into the jeep. I'm left standing alone. 
Fortunately, my nightmares tend to have spectacular and highly flattering endings. The men would leave me in some lone cabin, and when they got back after a long day's hunt, I would have killed more game than any one of them, and furthermore cooked it for supper. Is she coming too? was spelled out by hunters in many different ways, but it took law enforcement to really pin it down. In summer, our job in Iowa was to find pheasant nests, and in autumn and winter, it was our duty to count quail on various study areas, usually near some very small town. Dr. Arrington sent us out to Ottumwa and said we were to stay at the Balangal Hotel. At 8 a.m., Mr. Updegroff, the regional game warden, was to pick us up in the lobby and show us the study area. Frederick and Updegroff shook hands when Mr. Yu took one look at me and came right out with it. Is she coming too? Yes. Updegroff, a big and burly man with a remarkably red complexion, heaved a deep sigh and let me scramble into the back seat of the car. For a while, it looked as though we might not get to the study area. Iowa has a type of mud known as gumbo. This sticks to the tires and may build up so much that it is no longer possible to steer. Gumbo will cling to anything. At last, we left the car and started out to explore the study area and find quail coveys. Gumbo clung to our boots. It built up in great persistent masses, and our feet got heavier and heavier. Sometimes we had to pause to scrape the mud off one foot, using the other as a scraper. But Frederick seemed in something of a hurry. When Mr. Updegroff, who had been panting heavily, sat down to try to push some mud off of his boots with a stick, Frederick reminded him that we had a big area to cover. We traveled along a fence row, down through the oozy mud, and came upon a sizable stream, its ice water purling along well laden with mud. Fran, Frederick pointed to a tall oak on the other side of the stream. Why don't you climb that tree and see whether you can see any quail sign along the snow banks? I waded the stream in an offhand manner and squirreled up the tree. I love any excuse to climb. Then I stood in the treetop without holding on and examined the surrounding area, standing rather like George Washington crossing the Delaware. At last I slithered down, crossed the stream, and reported, nothing from the treetop. Off we went. My feet felt wondrously light after the bath my boots got in that stream, but even I found that Frederick was setting a good pace uphill through a soggy cornfield. All morning, Mr. Yu kept spotting rabbits in their forms. We were impressed, and I learned that a form is a place where a rabbit spends time very quietly when it has nothing else to do. Mr. Yu was quick. He even hand-grabbed a wild rabbit and gave it to me. My thought was to eat it, but he said, watch it run. By noon, Mr. Uptograph was concentrating not on rabbits, not on forms, but on lifting one mud-laden foot up after the other. We all were, but no one mentioned the matter. Mr. Updegroff stopped at the top of a hill, so we had to stop too. Time for lunch, he announced. We'd better get back to the car. Frederick's reaction was instantaneous. Lunch? We don't have time for lunch. Frederick pulled a five-cent Hershey bar out of his pocket, broke it into three pieces, and handed one to Mr. Yu. Here, take this. After lunch, Updegroff, possibly picking a shortcut, 
walked along a farm road while we tromped through an unharvested field of rutabagas. We each delved in the partly frozen ground and managed to eat a raw rutabaga apiece. Delicious. We flushed some quail, we counted some tracks, and we gathered some droppings, but mostly we moved on and on through Iowa gumbo. I got to wondering how much my feet weighed with all that mud. It was perfectly possible to pick up each foot and move it ahead, but I got to wondering how long it would continue to be perfectly possible. Mr. Uptegroff undoubtedly shared my views on this subject. Actually, my main thoughts were on quail, finding and counting coveys, and getting ready to work this study area next time all by ourselves. At about 4.30, when the sun started getting low, Mr. Yu announced, It's time to call it a day. Frederick was plainly struggling for an answer, so I piped up, But Mr. Uptegroff, it isn't dark yet. My man flicked me a look of instant appreciation. We slugged through the Iowa gumbo as long as there was light to see, and then we slogged back to the car. Mr. Yu followed us into the lobby of the Hotel Balangal. Frederick turned to me and asked in an offhand way, Would you like to go dancing? Oh, yes. Then, turning politely to Mr. Uptegroff, he asked, Perhaps you would like to join us. Mr. Uptegroff made a curious, small sound resembling a whinny. He plunged out of the hotel without really saying good night. Frederick maintains to this day that we went straight to bed and didn't wake up for 12 hours. I maintain that it would have been fun to go dancing. Ladies sometimes have the advantage. After a day in boots, three-and-a-half-inch heels exercise new muscles, and the day is born anew. At any rate, the word spread. Nobody from Iowa law enforcement ever again asked, is she coming too? And that's my reading of Francis Hammerstrom, book of the same name, one of my favorites. Remember, you can go to the WDRT.org website and look at the archived podcast section for other of my readings. This is Maggie Jones and Natural Wonders. Thanks so much for listening.